You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Marek Innet Panos. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Leo. What have you got for us today? Hi, Mark. Uh, Today I want to talk about design for manufacture. So, most simply, design for manufacture is the principle that a product must be designed to ensure that it is able to be manufactured and assembled. It sounds simple, but DFM has some really critical consequences, and it's often overlooked when new products are first conceived. To give an example of design for manufacture... Many moulded parts are designed without right angles because having parallel sides can make the part stick to its mould. If you take a close look at some plastic parts around your home, you might see that panels that at first seem to be straight are actually tapered by one or two degrees, which is just enough to ensure the part would be able to slide out from its mould. As well as simply ensuring that a part is able to be made, DFM is also about considering the speed and cost of manufacturing. This might mean selecting materials that are cheaper or form factors and processing techniques that are amenable to high volume production. Alternatively, you might want to reduce the number of parts or the joints that need to be manually assembled. Despite its versatility, one of the main reasons 3D printing has not yet replaced traditional manufacturing is because it is a low volume process and it remains substantially cheaper to injection mould parts than to 3D print them. So that's DFM, a consideration of the design, form, speed and cost of manufacturing, and implementing that into the design of a project. I would encourage all entrepreneurs and researchers to keep DFM in mind as they start designing their next world-changing product. Do you have any uh, examples of where DFM was not followed and it needed a complete rethink on what was... What was made? Is there anything out there? People probably don't talk a lot about failures, but is, does anything spring to mind? Oh, that's that's a great question. I'm sure there are many, many examples. Has of, to be, right? Of, yeah. I mean, I can help you out here. Anything yeah. we do in the lab when we build something first is not designed with DFM in mind. No. Right? We'll have large cables. Even if you make an electrical component, it will have a large power source attached to it. It will have big cables, big alligator clips. It's, and then when we try to make it into a device, we suddenly have to come up with some clever manufacturing approaches. To, it goes even further. But anyway, you're supposed to be the talking. And I'm supposed to be Yeah, absolutely. The... I mean, it's certainly true that almost every lab scale project begins in a very, a, a way that doesn't enable it to be manufactured directly. Of course, you, you know, you're doing a lot of prototyping steps that require a lot more labor per unit than you would expect at the high volume manufacturing end. But it's, it's more than that because it's about selecting processes and systems that can later be adapted to manufacturing. And sometimes, you know, 3D printing is, is a classic example. You can design things on a 3D printer that cannot be made any other way. So if you design something in your lab and it requires a 3D printed part to function, you may never be able to mass manufacture that product. So you need to be able to adapt it later. You should be aware of the manufacturing constraints. Even if you're not following them immediately, you need to have a strategy for being able to follow them later. 
Two quick questions on that. One is, of course, what is 3D printing? And the second one would be, can you give an example of something that can be 3D printed, but not readily made in any other way? Okay, so 3D printing is a technology. It's part of the additive manufacturing suite. It's a head that moves across a build plate, depositing bits of material in certain places and slowly building up a 3D shape. Now, the things that 3D printing can do that others can't is a lot of fine internal structuring. So if you imagine when you're molding a part, you basically get a solid part. uh, And in order to make something hollow, you would mold several pieces and assemble them later. Even that, you know, if you want to get some really fine surfaces, like, for instance, a catalytic converter surface or a, a radiator heat exchange, you know, the more surface area you build into those, the, the better they work. So in a molded part, you, you're limited by the molding process into how much surface area you can create. With a 3D printer, you can drastically increase the surface area by virtue of the way the manufacturing process works. So you could theoretically design a part on a 3D printer that works wonderfully as a catalyst, but you have no feasible way for transferring that super high surface area into a mass manufacturing process. So that might be an example where the 3D printing technology is enabling something that really won't translate to mass manufacturing. Great, thank you. That's all we have time for on your topic. Let me talk to you about hiring and firing at the university. So hiring of university researchers used to be a little bit different from what it's now. For example, I got hired for my first job while talking to someone over a beer. We had a little bit of a chat. Then we agreed on what I would do and where I would work. And a few days later, I got a contract to sign. So this is obviously a while ago. And hiring at universities is now very different and much more structured. It involves generally putting out a job ad, putting a selection committee together, which has to be gender balanced, followed by a shortlisting process and then a formal interview process. And this now even goes down from people that you hire as lecturers to even as PhD students. And usually the interview process of the shortlisted candidates involves a presentation of their research portfolio, but also of their future plans, which is then followed by a formal interview. And after checking references, then an offer will be made to the successful candidate. Now, firing is a little different. In general, it is hard to fire someone at a university, even for people at the lower end of the research scale, such as master students or PhD students. And it's also because universities are generally very reluctant to fire, even if they need to do that due to budget shortfalls. Their preferred route is generally natural attrition, so retiring due to age, or from offering voluntary redundancies, and in some cases, making forced redundancies. But that's a last resort. Needless to say, some cases of firing can be pretty straightforward. That is, if the researcher engages in misconduct. However, there is a gray area that involves something that is called academic freedom. This means that academics are allowed to openly criticize the university, for example, on television or on a streaming network. I have an example of this, but I'm out of time. So these are very briefly the key aspects of hiring and firing. All right, Mark, we'll give you another 30 seconds for your example. Hit us. So the example is, and this comes from a story that's in the Australian, 
there is a Queensland scientist who has a wrongful dismissal claim. And what has happened is that the university says it didn't sack him for criticizing the university. It's actually sacked him because he breached the code of conduct. And that's where the, the gray area comes in. So this particular researcher was criticizing the university. So the university says, we're not sacking you because of the criticism, but we're sacking you because you breached our, our, um, our code of conduct. Does the code of conduct include not criticizing the university? <laughs> no, the code of conduct at the university actually says, like my own contract says, I am allowed to put my views forward, even if they're not similar to the university. But what I can't do is do serious misconduct. So if I do something that is illegal, that can be construed as a case of misconduct. Right. Well, I had another question on the hiring stage. I guess it's more of a commentary, but your original hiring you talked about, the beer and the contract, that sounds, I guess, more like how a startup might approach the hiring process, whereas what the universities now have in formal rigorous process is big business approach as well. Is it just because organisations get bigger, they need the formalisation of those processes, or do you think you could still operate a university with the, the informal approach? I think universities have become more centralised. This was in the time when universities were much more decentralised and the decision-making would lie at a much lower level. So a researcher may have funding, they can hire someone, and then it doesn't require a lot of signatures to hire someone. Now there are lots of policies and procedures have been put in place. Admin has grown at universities, which is no secret. So with admin generally come more processes. Is it better or worse? I can't comment on that because in my case, I was quite pleased that I got a job like that. Is it more equitable? I think it's probably nicer if you go through a formal process, but it used to be very different. You could just get a job by just having a chat with someone. Yeah, I mean, I think that debate is as old as organisations. You know, how much structure is the correct mm. amount of structure and how centralised should it be? Anyway, um, that's probably all the time we have for this episode. So thank you, Mark, and see you next week. See you next week.